0: I will never forget that night walking home when I called one of my sisters and I was just like, "I, I think my life is about to change.
1: Hey friends, welcome to We Can't Print This.
2: This is a podcast
1: telling the story you don't know behind the story you do. My name is Eden Dawn.
2: And my name is Fiona McCann.
1: And every week, Fiona and I interview a writer of some kind or another about the stories behind their stories.
2: This week, we are delighted and feeling extremely fortunate to welcome New York Times best-selling author, educator, and community activist Renee Watson.
1: New York Times, ever heard of it? Mm, maybe.
2: She won Among by the way, other major honors and awards, a prestigious Coretta Scott King Award and a Newbery Honor for her young adult novel, Piecing Me Together, which is a beautiful work. I encourage everyone to go out and read it and give it to your kids. Is also the author of a number of YA and middle grade novels, including most recently, the third in the Ryan Hart series, Ways to Share Joy. And can I tell you, she's also sold over one million books.
1: That's amazing.
2: One million and been on the Oregon Battle of the Books list, which I just had to shout out because I love ObB. And I also had the privilege once to edit an extraordinary essay for Portland Monthly about what Ramona Quimby meant to her. Because you
1: know what? She was born and raised right here in Portland. I know. I love how many other Oregonians we've had on here.
2: I think it's also worth mentioning, because this is hot news off the press as we speak, that Renee has very recently just this instant, announced that she has sold her very first work of adult fiction. Oh! This just in. So, we all know her as an amazing and incredible YA and kids book author, but also, she's going to have some things to say to you
1: grown-ups, too. She's had such a wild career in a relatively short period of time, and today talks to us about how she got the foot in the door, which is not a story I expected, and it is not like any other writers I've ever met. No,
2: I never heard a story like that before, I have to say. But I do think it's worth thinking about because there are some doors that automatically open for certain people, and then there are other times when people have to just shove their way in any any old way they can.
1: Yeah, can I tell you that my first paid journalism job because I wrote for things for free as many young writers do. Please do not do this at home. Young writers Yeah, do not do not. But we did um, was writing for one of the local papers here where I was paid to write three articles a week, $12 and 50 cents. Wait in a word in total. Wait, what 12 that was my weekly pay was $12 and 50 cents to write three fashion articles a week, and I was paid them in weekly checks. Oh they would God. mail checks to me every... And by the way, I'm young, thank you. This was not in 1912. This was in Victorian England, and, <laughs> and I, was, I was a chimney sweep at the time. <laughs> and I was a nanny with a bag. Um, no, this was in I, like 2009, maybe, $12.50 a week. I don't want to say I'm grim, but they're probably paid less now, even... <laughs> That was the peak of journalism. But it led to me getting headhunted to the next job, which went to the next job. Like it was my foot in the door because it was the first time I was being paid for a thing. So I am glad I did it. But it is very entertaining to look back. And I, because I didn't want to go to the bank that much. Sometimes I would just like save them up and then walk in with like like, six checks to endorse and feel like I was a baller. And then it would, the total would, you know, be like $62.
2: (laughs) Well, twelve dollars and how many cents? Fifty.
1: Twelve fifty a week. By six. You do the math, people, because I was going to try it. And you do the math. We don't want to. What about you? How did you get? What was your thing?
2: I mean, I when I was a journalism student, I was studying journalism in college, in part, to be honest, because I thought no one's going to let me do this work unless I have some kind of degree in it. I've really had that absorbed that, and it turns out that maybe that's also not true. Yeah, but. I was like, no, no, I have to do my master's, I have to study journalism, and then somehow I'll be let into the hallowed halls of journalism, which in Ireland was quite a small industry as all, uh, to be honest, it's a very small country, so all industries are kind About of small. the
1: size of Oregon,
2: right? Population-wise?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's actually smaller in geographical land space and probably slightly bigger population-wise, but yeah, we're talking more or less comparable. Anyway, what I really, really, really wanted to work for the Irish Times. That was the newspaper that I knew I had my heart set on, but... Mm-hmm. I really wanted to work there, and I, but as I was studying journalism and I just didn't know how to do these things, I didn't know how to get in the doors, but I was working, as you do, through college as a lounge girl in a bar, and yeah. I happened to be working a shift when some Irish Times journalists came in, and because I recognised them all, because I was an obsessive fangirl of Irish Times at the time, I was able to go up. And leveraged the one bit of power I had, which was the fact that I was serving the drinks.
1: Yeah, if you have the drinks and it's a bunch of writers, <laughs> mm-hmm. you I know who, like, what the real hierarchy is.
2: I'll scratch your back uh-huh. if you scratch mine. And it was through that interaction that I finally kind of, when I had them all well-sauced enough, I finally asked somebody, hey, I'm kind of a journalist. I mean, I may look like a lounge girl in my little vest and my skirt, but I actually am a journalist. And can you let me into the building sometime? And somebody from that gave me a shift at the Irish Times.
1: They just gave you a shift?
2: Well, there was a lot of booze involved. They, just, that just
1: gave me. <laughs> was it like an internship? Or was it like a come on down and let's see what you can do? I mean, I think we had to email a little
2: bit and he showed, I showed him some clips, which were okay. like my college clips. But then he was like, sure, come down and do a shift. And I went down there and the only thing I had to write the whole entire night was a photo caption it was like the night shift it was probably from like I can't even remember the hours but it was like dead of night nobody else is in
1: the building but it was was a shift and they're like this photo needs captioned yeah
2: how about you do that and I was like why I'm glad you asked me and then I wrote a Shakespearean opus about that photo and it was cut down to three lines obviously
1: you know what though captions are important and I get very annoyed when I am looking at any kind of published work and there's not a caption on a photo like Like, why am I looking at this thing tell me why these people are important who are these people and if you don't know your job as a journalist was you were supposed to go up and you were supposed to find out who all of those people were captions are important so I say kudos to you ma'am thanks lady to be honest I
2: swept bullets over it at the time but I also I just felt so grateful that I'd had this opportunity and I honestly had to muster up so much courage at the time and I was sweating bullets absolutely sweating bullets when I went up to them but I remember thinking like this is it this is the moment and they were so nice about it because they're probably well sauced at the time <laughs> and also because as
1: journalists we're always like please god help us yes yeah do you sure well, you want to do this love we could use some help but I love that because it does take any creative world I think definitely takes uh, a little bit of chutzpah a bit of chutzpah to like just
2: put one toe in the door, and then you shove your entire self afterwards, drinks, tray and all,
1: and then you get. And just do it. Wait, is this the hotel that you told me you worked at or the bar you worked at that was owned by you too? Correct. I like this because I just always picture you like walking past like Bono and the Edge as you go in and like tipping your hat at them. Like, (laughs) good day, sirs.
2: I'm I'm walking past Bono and the Edge and going, you can do nothing for me, but there's some Irish Times (laughs) journalists in the corner. I don't care who you are. So yeah, they were my celebrities. And to this day, yeah. I just, I'm so grateful. They were very wonderful about it. And, you know, I still do some work for them to this very day.
1: I mean, she has a column for the Irish Times right now where she reviews podcasts every week. So how is that for a full circle of life? All I'm saying
2: is they were good drinks. (laughs)
1: Um, That is kind of an advanced networking move. I'm not... I'm not sure all of our listeners should go up to the person that they (laughs) want to work for and try to A, withhold drinks and B, ply them with drinks all at the same time. But you can just pull that off. It's just my story. That's it. It's just my story. That's just your story. And now we're going to get into Renee's and find out what a delight she is. Though I am sad we did not catch the off-mic conversation about all of our deep love for 90s hip-hop. But just know in your heart that that happened too. This is all... Against the background of 90s hip-hop love. Yeah, exactly. And Bono's in it. And Bono's in it. What a time.
2: So welcome, Renee. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Now, I know that you were going to talk a little bit about maybe your road to publication. And from what I understand, it began in in school, right?
0: Yes. So, And thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be talking with you all. Yeah, so I... I tell this story to young people and, well, to adults, too, all the time. I've been a writer all my life, obviously not a professional writer, not published. But when I was in the second grade, I wrote a 21-page story, and my teacher was like, Oh, I I think you're gonna be a writer yeah. one day. <laughs> twenty-one pages. I know pages? twenty-one. Pa- can you imagine that handwriting for twenty 20- and the spelling? That must have um, taken you
2: so long.
0: I don't even. I don't know how long it took. I was such a storyteller as a kid, just a natural gift and. So thankful for the teachers who kind of saw that and nurtured it yeah. instead of just saying, Oh, you know, this is Yes. The- it wasn't an assignment. I wrote it at home and I brought it to her. In your free time. Yes. And just- so, yeah. So she um and so many others, when I was in school, kept nurturing me and telling me, write, or get me journals and encourage me by giving me writing prompts. So I've been a writer for a long time. Took myself very serious as a writer. In seventh grade, my play was chosen at Ben'sme Middle School, which now has a different name, um, for the spring production for the school to put what? on.
1: What? Yes. <gasps> this <laughs> so, is the ultimate theater <laughs> kid <laughs> move. So
0: I'm just saying, what? you know, just these talents that our young people have that they're just good at. And you don't know why they sing so well or they can dance or they're always making beats. You just never know what that could become for them. So I'm always trying to encourage young people, especially in the arts, to not just think of that as a hobby or something just on the side, but to think of what could it become as you get older. My best
1: friend is a child psychiatrist, and she once told me that basically what you love to do when you're like 11, is the thing that you probably should do. That makes so much sense. Because you're just learning out what you like. And and that made me really treat, I don't have children, but like treat children that age quite differently yes. instead of being like, oh, cute dream. Like, you know, be like, okay, you're going to be a writer. Yes. Like you already were a writer, clearly. But it's so interesting to me. I feel like... That Did you probably- love making podcasts when you were 11? Yeah, I pretty much did. I had a tape recorder and sat down and talked to it all the time. I forced I like my cats that. to sit in a row while I spoke yes, to them. Yes, I love it. But I think that that,
0: especially, I do have
1: to know. Can you tell me one line about what the play was? I want to know so badly.
0: Oh, the play. So, seventh grade, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was sad. It was a, a girl was writing in her diary. It was called Dear Diary. Of course.
2: semi autobiography you know, It was
0: like about bullying and this girl who felt very alone but met a friend who helped her kind of find her way. So it's a story of friendship and, you know, standing up for someone who is kind of on the margins of the of the school. Universal theme. Yeah, who knew? It? In the 7th grade, I was already yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um so I say all this to say by the time I was in college and I went to to college in in my late 20s to finish my degree. So I was I had lived some life at this point. And I was taking art therapy classes. And for a class assignment, we were assigned to write a picture book about something that a child might be in therapy for. So divorced parents, Mm -hmm. you know, death, something serious. Mm -hmm. And I had just returned from New Orleans. I had just done poetry workshops and art therapy with young people there who had survived Hurricane Katrina. Katrina, And their stories were just, just in my heart. I could not forget. Those young people. So I wrote a picture book for a class homework assignment. And because I am who I am, I rewrote it and rewrote it and really tweaked it and worked on it before turning it in. We workshop, I got feedback, taking notes. And my professor says, I want you to stay after class. Which you know, in college, that doesn't really happen. Like, no, <laughs> you know, you but don't.
2: It? sometimes it's bad news. I know.
0: Like, oh, I was like, oh, "What's oh. happening?" Well. Exactly. <laughs> it I was, was. It was always bad news for <laughs> for
1: me. It was. It was usually a discussion about talking too much. But I also have been an adjunct instructor for many years, off and on, and I I can't maybe a couple of times did i ever keep anyone after right class so do, i was a nervous. very rare thing yeah, yeah. i was like and, what is happening
2: why and are this you professor me professor was the professor of the creative writing part of the of career? that class yeah. yeah so
0: she's a published author Ooh. um illustrator and had years in the field every this was at the new school in new york city and all of our professors had to be practicing whatever they taught um oh, I so love that. yeah i loved that i was learning from people who were doing the work as they were teaching it So she says to me, "Um, yeah, you know, I've noticed a lot of the work that you've turned in is really strong. I think you have a voice for young people. But this book in particular, I really think you should send it out and try to get it published. And I'm like, what? So she's like, I want to introduce you to my agent. And I just, I'm stunned. And then I'm looking. There's one student who stayed after, slowly putting their things in their bag. And,
1: <laughs> oh, I've done so that. So I have hope. an attitude. Yeah, I've done
0: that <laughs> when you're trying to hear. you like, hey, exactly. I'm having a conversation I know, with my like, professor mind your here. business. Why are you <laughs> all up in my business? If
1: like somebody's fighting at a coffee shop, and I'm just like, <laughs> Boring off into that, just trying to listen, <laughs> pretending to clip the leaves outside. <laughs> your neighbors.
0: So, yeah, you couldn't tell me she wasn't eavesdropping and trying to just be nosy. But she says, yeah, Renee. So I didn't want to say anything in class. I was going to wait to the last day of class, but I'm an editor at Random House. <laughs> wow.
2: I just fell off my chair. <laughs> I mean, Random House is a huge, huge publishing house. It really is. Yes. And a yeah. f- member of your cla- a classmate was an editor of yes, Random House. Yes, she
0: was just taking the class for her own personal growth. She didn't want to tell anyone. No one at work knew she was taking the class, none of us knew she was an editor. She was just doing this solely for I her. I love her. I do too. And so she said, "You know, I I really think you should you should get published. You should try." And and she worked on like Bob the Builder and Dora the Explorer <gasps> kind of books. These are big so names. she was like, "I can't I can't help you because I don't do realistic fiction, but." I know people at Random House, so let me introduce you to a few folks. And that is how I got my foot in the door at, at Random House. I will never forget that night walking home when I called one of my sisters, and I was just like, I, I think my life is about to change. I knew that I would be published one day. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was a goal. I definitely wanted that. But i that was going to be so far from that moment. I thought, I need to graduate first. I need to more experience. I definitely thought I'd write for older folks, not for children. Definitely not a picture book. So mm. it was a surprise to me, but also very, no one was surprised in a sense, because they were like, well, yeah, you're a writer. You've been yeah. doing this forever, we, right?
2: But anybody who knows that world knows that, it's no easy thing to even get an agent. I mean, that's and the deal. Get, is you a, get <laughs> you a foot in a publishing house door. I'm like, what? What are the odds of you that? You skipped
1: in that process. You were able to jump ahead of what so many people... I'll tell you what, I have a couple of books through a division of Penguin Random House. I don't have an editor at Random House's email I can directly message. You know that you just were able to get that and then also to not have to go... Did you get an agent or did, did you sign directly I with I, them?
0: I got it. Well, so they made an offer um, before I had an agent. Of course, I was like, uh, what? I don't know what to do with this. And so I talked what? to my on professor that on that picture But So I sent... The picture book to an editor. Her name is Susie. And, Hi, Susie. Hey, Susie. Uh, she was just so kind and she was like, Yes, we want this. And she made an offer. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Straight <laughs> away? I was just like, um, this- hold on, hold on. So I talked to my professor who became a mentor. And I was just like, This is happening. It's happening really fast. And so she introduced me to her agent. And I will say, I mean, I. I didn't even know. I was so naive and young and just so grateful and thankful. It didn't dawn on me, like, Renee, you have an offer from Random House. You can probably get any agent you want right now. Yeah. Take your time. Really interview people. Think about what you want. And so I said yes to my first agent, who was fine and amazing, but long term, Definitely, I needed someone I could grow with. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: yeah, but in the
0: beginning, good. it was perfect. I mean, he was able to negotiate a good contract for me and help me understand the business side of publishing. I share this story because you could walk away and think, oh, so you got lucky, or it's who you knew, and they introduced you. But really, what I think it was is that opportunity met preparedness, right? Yeah, you, so, you just
2: described how you had like really edited your book and worked hard on it, Yeah,
0: so i always tell people especially because i write for young people a lot of times my audiences are young people who are aspiring to something and i'm like it's good to have those big lofty goals but first just be good at the craft like really just be good when no one is looking do the work when it's just you and because i was doing the work and writing so many things when my editor was finished when we were finished with the picture book She says, so do you have any other ideas? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. yes, I do. Because I have been writing for all these years and I had so many short stories that I could make longer into novels. So my first novel, What Mama Left Me, was once a play. I wrote at Jefferson High School here in Mm. Portland. And I took that, I took those characters and those themes and turned that into a novel. So I was ready. I was so prepared because I had all this stuff just kind of waiting. All this um, material
2: that you'd already been working on. Yeah. For years. So my
0: first few books, I think probably up until this side of home, were already stories that had been in me from. I'm talking like high school, middle school days when I was writing and just keeping things in folders.
1: The thing I like about it, too, is and it's something I often told my students and I feel like we even try to do here in the building is it's about sharing your work. I feel like 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 a good lesson to get into as a young, especially as a young person getting into writing is share your work. Don't just keep it to yourself Mm -hmm. because it's a vulnerable place to share your work when you don't feel, or even when you do feel professional, you know what I mean? So it's that you're sharing it with people, that you're reworking it, that you're meeting with the kids. All of that about is that like network and community. And that, in my experience for sure, has been where some of the good stuff happens. It's not when you're just at home by yourself in the basement, you know?
0: Yeah, writing can be so isolating. So I think the more you can engage with the writing community and and give of yourself, the better it feeds you, too. It's something that feeds me the more I'm out with folks doing writing workshops, getting critiqued, you know, that that give and take of I'm offering something uh, and I'm also going to sit and take something, too. All of that has helped um, shape my writing career, for sure.
2: But I think that the fact that you had worked your bottom off on this assignment, you know, you didn't phone it in. We've all phoned in college assignments, like for God's sake. But like, that's, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had a class full of people. Where, did they publish all of them? Yes. No. Seems unlikely. <laughs> seems unlikely. Um, and I just feel like that's also testament to, it's the craft, it's some kind of talent and ideas, and then it's that slog of, okay, I got to get down and get this done in the best possible way. And then it's, oh, I happen to be an editor from Random House. <laughs> I mean, no. I believe, Renee, you would have got there anyway if you'd been in that class or if it had been a, a little bit longer knocking on doors. Like, I really think that, but it is interesting that that moment, as you said, you can pinpoint as I think my life's going to change. Now, I'm curious about one thing that you said as well. You didn't originally intend to write for a younger audience, right? No,
0: never. Never. It's so wild to me that I have picture books, and middle grade novels in the world. I never thought I would write for that age.
2: And because that book got published, right? That assignment got published.
0: It was my first book. It's A Place Where Hurricanes Happen. And it's Uh, illustrated by Shadra Strickland. Yeah, and we got to go and uh, go on a book tour and give books to the students who inspired the story. I got to meet them five years later after there was some rebuilding in New Orleans and they were in a better place. So it was a beautiful... Thing for me to be able to go and donate books and just be with the students who who started it, you know, because I wanted to make sure that we weren't out here with this book about them and that they didn't even know it existed. Right, right. So uh, it, yeah, it was a beautiful experience to be able to go with Shadra and we did poetry and art workshops with the young people.
1: Did something just click when you started writing for middle grade and w- was there different Feeling to your writing, or do you feel like people were drawn to it? And you said, Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, I think
0: I probably was always writing for that Asian. I just didn't know it. And no oh. one told me, people would say, You are a good writer, or that was a good story. It wasn't until I was in school that I learned, Oh, this is YA, or this is middle grade. You have a voice for middle grade. One of my professors would always say that. And I was like, Really? So then I just started reading. Those books. I (laughs) reread books that I grew up on and then all the new ones that were coming out. And I was like, this makes sense that why she's saying this to me. And I was working with young people at the time. So I was a teaching artist for many years. I mentioned teaching poetry to young people. I did that work in Portland. And once I moved to New York for school, I was doing it there as well. And their stories, my students who I would be with, oh, let's see, maybe three times a week for 90 minutes sessions Mm -hmm. for the whole school year. So I got to really know them. And they were my inspiration for sure. My first students.
2: Mm. How important is school for somebody who wants to be a writer? Like, did you do you think it's valuable to sort of put your, you know, your chips into some kind of college program?
0: I do. I mean, I think if it's not college, I know everyone can't afford that as a privilege to be able to go. I was on full scholarship So if you can't go, I do think it's important to be in a critique group. So I have two groups of people. Mm -hmm. When I just need to be loved and I just need to be encouraged and I need a cheerleader, I have those readers who I know they're just going to love this and that's what I need right now. But then Mm -hmm. when I really need the real feedback of like, this whole chapter, what is happening here? This is just- <laughs> doesn't you know, work.
1: Like, um, this doesn't work. Right. This in our house, we call it flat. support or solutions. <laughs> yes. Right now, do you need support or solutions? Exactly. And sometimes you have to say it up front when you're like, here's what's going on. I just need support yes. for the record. Yes. This is not solving anything. <laughs> yeah, and then some, so true. Just tell me you love me and I'm pretty. And then sometimes you're like, I need solutions. Yeah, Help me life. work through this. <laughs> that's yeah. a
0: good thing to keep in mind for all things. So yes, I, I think it's important if you're not, not going to college, to enroll in workshops, to get writer friends or people who love to read. Everyone's not a writer, but I have had great feedback from a a few friends of mine who are avid readers. So they just know good stories and they're able to give me feedback, especially in the beginning of my career. So yeah, I think it's important to connect yourself with a community of creative folks who you can kind of rub up against and learn from and they can learn from you and and you perfect the craft that way, for sure.
2: In a way, like you're describing, I don't think I even understood the possibilities of those worlds when I was younger. And what you needed, you know, the idea of going to college and studying writing was ridiculous because that's not going to get you a job. Exactly. You know? So
0: many people said that to me.
2: Yeah. And, oh, they did? Oh, yes. And you were like, I don't care. It felt quite <laughs> well, No, I cared.
0: I was just, I just, I knew, I just felt I was put on this earth to do this thing and How can I make this make sense for my life? And so I had people who were just like, I don't know. Like, I don't. What you want doesn't exist. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, I feel like people just couldn't dream with me. And so I had very few people who fully understood or supported what I wanted to do. And then I was just courageous.
2: And confident. Like, I, I do think you have to believe a little bit in it. Like, it's so easy to be moved off this path
0: yes well
1: so and easy. that's why I have to say I was really excited you were coming on today because you know question <laughs> I feel like when you are um in our world sometimes people ask you like where did you get the confidence to do that or where did you sometimes maybe even where did you get the audacity to do that whether it's be a writer or like I host a lot of events but things that make you have to like be in front of a lot of people and be really confident and if I really dial it down, I think so much of it has to do with the books I read when I was young. I really do. You know, I was obsessed with Nancy Drew, who was always kicking butt and leaving the boys behind. Babysitter's Club? Yes. My Oh my, nobody was cooler than Claudia Kishi to me. Are you kidding? And then obviously our girl, Ramona Quimby, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who as growing up as Oregonians, like we saw her and all of her glory and her funk and all of it. But it made you not... It's true. It made you not afraid to be the audacious young woman.
2: Damn, I'm just listening to this thinking, but then I was stuck down the back of the wardrobe trying to get into Narnia this whole time. Like, it does depend on the books you read. It I'm does. Just
1: but those, those audacious characters, I saw myself in them, and they gave me inspiration and a little bit of that courage. And I was excited... To know about your work in general, because you're doing that for a whole other generation. Oh, thank girls. you. I and hope so. I know that you are, and and for other people, you know those those people I talk about. Most of those characters were white. You know, right. I mean, obviously not Jesse and Claudia, and there are some of the babysitter girls, but um, that you are able to give that so that especially young black women can see themselves in a character.
0: So clearly, I think it's just so much more formative for all of us than we know. I think so, too. You know, I I always say that, yes, I read those books. I love Judy Bloom. Like I was an avid reader when I saw myself in literature. It was poetry because there weren't a lot of books that I that I had access to where the main characters were black and black and happy. If mm-hmm. I read a book that was about a black family or or something it was from a like historical fiction perspective about enslaved people or the civil rights movement or you know struggle and pain and I needed those stories. I think we all need to know this country's history, but it was also like can I just do have y- black joy? Yeah. yeah, can we just have some black joy? And I didn't know how to articulate that as a kid, but I had the poetry of Nikki Giovanni Maya Angelou, Langston yes. Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, and that is when I was like, <gasps> you know, these people—they sound like my people. They're—they're they're talking how my aunties and and the folks at my church talk. They are saying things that I care about and that I'm thinking about. And so I gravitated to poetry for that reason of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is when I got discouraged. And there are still moments. Or you're just like, I can't do this. Or what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Um, I don't know how to finish this book or this project. Or I'm trying to advocate for things like my characters looking how I describe them. The tone of their skin, the kink of their hair, the size of their body on the cover. All of those things you have to kind of push back against in publishing. I think about Maya and Nikki and Mm. Langston and these giants who... Wrote their story with no shame and with great pride. And I lean on their example. And I think that is what helped me keep pushing. When I would have people say, That dream is wild, and I don't, you, you need to figure out how to make some money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not going to make money for you. You're not going to survive. Our New York is hard. Are you sure you want to move there? You know, all the kind of, and, and I think some of it was out of actual care. You know, there were some people who were just like trying to squash my dreams, but there were people who loved me. And maybe, you know,
2: and is it too much of how all of that? All that's of that. their own fears. Right, that, that right. We that they on put people. on you. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. So yeah, I leaned on people who had done so much and they gave me strength to carry on.
2: And that's what you're doing now for this next generation, which is wonderful. I grew up in a, you know, a small country that at the time was pretty insular in certain ways. We you know, we had mass emigration, but I didn't really know very much about the world at all, and I learned about it through books. So much of it, and it, it, and for me, a lot of the books I didn't have Nancy Drew. Maybe I did have Nancy Drew, but for some reason, that's not resonating. But I, I didn't have the Babysitters Club. Oh, um, so I We're read sh- a lot. Yeah. <laughs>
1: No one can see the faces that Renee are making right now. Yeah, we're just, we're, They're <laughs> I'm just sad. We're, I'm like, oh no, you didn't have the baby. You didn't, I didn't the have, baby have cors- the babysitters. <laughs> this is like, how we became so entrepreneurial. I didn't. <laughs> yes, have that.
2: I had a lot of books, and my parents were great, and we went to the library all the time. But I remember that a lot of the characters who were doing the fun stuff were male, and so my first stories as a young writer were all male characters because I thought, oh, the, uh, the fun happens to men. They have the adventures, so. I have to be a male protagonist in order to have oh, like adventures. That makes me so sad. I just love the idea now that there are young black girls who will read your book and see that they can be the protagonists in their own story. Yeah. And that's that's awesome. Yeah. That's a and and you probably can I'm sure you feel that energy because so much of what you do is also educating and meeting these readers,
0: right? Yes. It's the best part of my job is getting to not just write the book, but meet the young people who I'm writing for and the educators who are nurturing them, sometimes I'll look out in the audience and I will see a person who looks like the character (laughs) and they're wearing the same hairstyle or, and I just, I love that. And that is so important to me. And that is why, like I said, I advocate so hard for my covers. I just, I don't play when it comes to making sure there is representation that you can see on the cover of this dark skinned black girl who is happy. Like there, there was a phase in children's lit where first we couldn't even be on the cover as dark-skinned black girls. And then, okay, fine, you can have the dark skin, but they would be looking so sad and mm. so downtrodden. Pensive. And yeah. yeah, and I was like, no, 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 I want her smiling, or, or I just want her to exist. Like, she doesn't need to be super happy or depressed. Like, just a neutral face <laughs> with her braids. Or, you know, I'm thinking of Nala on the cover of Lovers of Revolution. Um and Jade for Piecing Me Together. I've just gotten better over the years of advocating for myself because I think, I mean, I'm advocating for the reader. And I want yeah. especially young black girls to see reflections of their neighborhood, their families, themselves on on the cover. I think that's so important.
2: But do you have that kind of power as a writer? I always Ooh, wondered yeah. um, whether you're, you know, whether they're just like, leave the publishing to us. I think.
0: In former years, it was harder, and I when I my first book came out in 2010, and it was much harder for me to have a, a say in what the cover would look like. Two things have happened over the years. One is the conversation has changed. You know, we need diverse books started around what was that? Maybe 2014, 2015. So there was more advocacy for diverse books and then for what do those books look like and who are they written by and all of that conversation became more public it was happening but they were kind of like the bullhorn that amplified those conversations and i got better at advocating for myself so simultaneously while the conversation was happening in the field i also just took more ownership of my career and i just have learned and i think this is true for a lot of of our lives, no one is going to care about your work like you do. Yep. No yep. one can be a better advocate than well, you, right? Yep. So I had to kind of get over my fear of, oh, I want to be likable, and mm-hmm. I don't want, what if I get labeled as the, you know. The difficult. Yeah, yeah and all the difficult. stereotypes of being a woman that's too aggressive, yep. being a black woman that's angry. I had to get that out of my head and think of what is, best for this story, what is best for this reader, and really...
2: And plus, a third thing that happened is he sold a million books, so... <laughs> yes. well, I mean,
1: that's that's that, it know, does help that. It's
0: like, you gotta play with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny, the more... So, I, there was there have been moments in my career where I've kind of... You know, there's all the meetings, with marketing has a vision for what the book should be, editorial does, I do, and we're all trying to get on the same page. So there's been some moments where I've really had to push push, push. And then I'm like, oh, God, okay, they gave me what I want. I hope this does, yeah, you hope this well. Yeah, well. So that's kind of what's happened, too, is I have good instinct, you know, and I- it turns out, I yeah. know my people. I know what I'm doing. And so I think the more that I've kind of proven to them, like, listen, just please listen to listen, me. Trust me. I, I'm not right about everything, but one thing I am right about is that black girls need and want to see their reflection on covers. So let's work to make that happen together, you know? Yeah.
1: And I feel like that battle, well, a couple of things for especially starting out writers, I always feel like, I do feel like choose your battles. Mm -hmm. Like there are some things that are not that important to me where somebody's like, I feel like we could cut that chapter. And I'm like, okay, well, I kind of liked it. But if we need to save space so that when you can have those things where you're like, absolutely. Look. I am a team player, I hear everybody else, but this thing is a non-negotiable for me, I do think is important, you know? And so that when you do have that firm thing, and then the other part to it is, especially your age of readers, there is something about books we read at that age that imprint on our brain unlike anything else. I could sit here and write out the entire plot to Howl's Moving Castle for you, though I have not read it since like 1989, but because at that age, and I can't tell you that about most books I read last year, you know, there's just something at that time where you're falling in love with reading and characters that imprint on you so hard
0: that it's like, yeah, it's worth having that argument. You yeah. want
1: somebody to see themselves Absolutely, it. it. matters.
0: Yes, I totally agree. I, I, I say this too, to new writers as well like pick your non-negotiables early mm-hmm. like figure out what are your values as a writer why are you telling stories and so yeah it's a conversation and it's and it, I don't always say something there are many things and I'm like I don't like that font or I don't My like it, but I'm never gonna I yeah, would yeah. never say that <laughs> in a meeting you know mm-hmm. and you just let all of that stuff go so that when you need to <laughs> um, yes You know, then you can have you have a little bit more weight also because if you're always complaining, people are not going to take any of it serious. Exactly. You just always have something to say. So I think it's just a life lesson is to think about when to use your voice and when to be quiet.
1: Well, and what you said, such I think, is so smart. Is have those non-negotiables based on your values because that is a different thing. Where it's like, yeah, we all have aesthetics. We might not like that font. I'm like, mm. but like, I can remember one thing where an, an editor I had on a on an article I had written interviewing writing some small business saying, and the editor had interjected like a little bit of a joke about the person's name. As people who have unusual names, mm-hmm. I just never think it's funny. That was such a thing. I'm like non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. This is getting cut and I think I came in so guns and blades and he was like okay that was like such an instant okay and then we just moved on I was like all right uh because in several years I had never done that you know what I mean yeah. so it is that little all right I'm glad you said
0: something and I think too it's important to remember that people are on their growing edge too they probably don't even realize that that's offensive there are some people who are malicious and who just have an agenda, yes. Most people, I feel, just they want to make the best product possible, or they're just trying to make the story the best that they feel it's going to be. And we might disagree on what that looks like. And so having conversations and really listening and trying not to come in with my judgment about the industry and publishing and all that has also helped me, I think, long term, just have the staying power because you can get discouraged and frustrated. You're like, why do I even have to have this conversation? I can't believe we're having a conversation about making a a big girl be big on a cover. But that is where we're at. And so what am I going to do? Either I'm not going to write the story or I'm going to have the conversation and make sure Nala looks like herself or Amara from some places more than others. And I've realized that in having that conversation, most people are like, yeah, why don't we see that more? And we actually should and let's make her fashionable and let you know and then they get into it and it's a beautiful moment of growth I think for the team and for marketing and uh, the artists and everyone that's involved but I had to be the person to kind of raise my hand and say hey guys can we you know open
2: up a conversation yeah I mean the (laughs) thing is that's good for everybody I want white boys to see that on the cover too I want everybody to see that on the cover I think that that's that can only be a positive, but it is always worth going in. I think I had a tendency in the past to just sort of walk into the meeting with somebody like a publisher and be like, well, they know everything, you know, they're, I, you know, and nobody knows everything (laughs) and we're all, we need to push all of these things as we go along and we're part of that push a little bit and not to sort of assume that somebody, obviously you have to respect expertise to some extent, but it doesn't mean a conversation can't happen. Absolutely.
1: Well, and it's a great argument of why diversity matters, not only in these like placating ways of like having a character of color. It's like, no, you need to have... You need to have diversity in the art department and the marketing department as the authors because that's everybody is bringing their perspective. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um I do have one more question before we let you go. I'm really curious as you write for this age group and have now for several years as the I feel like kids are changing so much the world is changing so much but you keep writing for people that are generally the same age I, I'm just interested like how does that change how you write about them does that impact the way you're writing for
0: middle grade kids I don't I don't think that it impacts the way that I write it might impact you know
1: Some they might detail. have a cell
0: phone versus I don't know ten years ago a sidekick you wouldn't have had <laughs> right you would have been not on a cell phone, a but um I think at the core, even how you were saying when you were younger, how much you read and the things that mattered to you, I think at the heart of it, humans are dealing with the same emotions over and over and over and over again, right? And that we all want to be seen and yeah. we all want to be validated. We want to be heard. And so in that way, I can keep writing for them because I know young people in the in the larger sense of just like I know what it's happening at that age where you are trying to figure who you are. You're trying to uh, blend in but stand out. Like all of the complications and nuances of being a young person, um, I think all of that remains the same. So I just have to be good at in my real life, being in relationship with young people so that I can be listening and have my ear to the ground of how they say what they say. But what they're saying and what they're talking about is the same. It's the same stuff I was talking about and worrying about um, when I was their age. So yeah, that's the dance.
1: That's interesting. You must always be the coolest person at a party then. (laughs) Because you like know- I don't don't know about that. Really? I feel like you (laughs) would know all the slang and all the stuff to be cool. Mm. And I feel I walk up to kids and I'm like, "Are you hip? <laughs> How you doing there, fella?" <laughs> that is hilarious.
2: That, yeah, you're still cool leading. Thanks. Promise. They're like, um,
1: "Get this narc out of here."
2: One final, final, final question is: I wondered if you had to leave any young listeners, I guess, with some advice who who want to become an artist or a writer or something. In that past, can sometimes seem impossible, or like it doesn't exist for them, what would your advice be?
0: I would say do the thing that scares you. It's okay to be afraid to pursue it. I think when we're afraid, it's a signal that we really care about it. So do the thing that you're afraid of. That's the only way to become brave, is to actually do the thing. And if you don't see anyone that's doing it, then you pave the way so that the next person who comes after you won't have it so hard. Um, So just because you don't see anyone doing it, doesn't mean that it can't be done.
1: Brilliant. Mm.
2: Words to live by. I know, it feels good. It really does.
1: Um, Thank you, Renee, so much for joining us. I feel like we could talk to you for hours. Uh, You can read more about Renee at ReneeWatson.net or follow her on Twitter at ReneeWAuthor or Harlem Portland on Instagram. Uh, that's it from We Can't Print This for today. You can see more info about the episodes and we'll link to Renee's website at com. and you can follow us on all our socials at that handle at wecan'tprintthis as well.
2: And thank you also to our producer Miranda Schaefer and to Dave Depper for our music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland and we want to send the biggest thanks to our third work wife, Rachel Ritchie, for replacing the snacks that she has eaten.
1: We have have things in a very important hierarchy here. Um, If you are a writer with a great behind the story story, write to us at WeCan'tPrintThis at gmail.com. Thank you, Renee. Thank thank you you so much, Renee.